Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. It's a beautiful balance, I think, between the silence of the trees and us and the birthday party next door. Um, this one's much happier than yesterday's party. There's a little boy who walked by a while back and was like, not that classroom, Mom. Uh, how many people were not here yesterday? Okay. Um, my hope is that this afternoon I'll sum up a little bit uh, and go forward a little bit at the same time. Yesterday we explored a koan or story from the Zen tradition. And uh, the story is about uh, Master Ma, who's unwell, and the temple superintendent comes to Master Ma and says, how are you feeling these days? And Master Ma responds, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. The punchline yesterday was really that the only way to uh, go through these different mental states as a Buddha is to recognize and then let go of your expectations. Maybe you can feel that in the sitting practice. You sit and then you notice there's nothing to do. All you have to do is stick with your breathing and still you have so many expectations. Expectations of others how they should behave, expectations of how deep you should be or peaceful and maybe you're not, expectations about your future, maybe some of you are planners, how many of you are planners, or regret about the past, how many of you are in the past when you're sitting. So the most important thing when you start sitting is um, your attitude. And your attitude begins with your posture. So when you plant your sits bones on your chair or your cushion, (coughs) and then your pubic bone drops so that your skeleton can lift, 
then you should be in the shape of a mountain. And you should sit like a mountain. So your sits bones are the base of the mountain. Your ethmoid bone, which we talked about this morning, is the peak of the mountain. And then inside the mountain is another mountain, which is inverted. So your hip crests and mula bandha mm -hmm. are like an inverted triangle within the triangle of the mountain. And then inside these triangles is fluidity. So even though on the outside it looks like you're so still, on the inside it's active. You're working with your agitation and soothing it. You're working with mental formations and you're soothing them, calming them. And then you can learn how to adjust to your life and find stability at the same time. So there's some movement and there's also uh, some stability, both happening. Just like a mountain is like this too. From a distance, a mountain looks like it's a mountain. And then one Zen master named Dogen said, if you look closely at a mountain, you'll see it's walking. Because if you look closely at a mountain, it looks like it's still. But when you get on a mountain and you start moving, you see the mountains changing all the time. So, Shinra Suzuki, who commented on this story of Master Ma, uh, here's what he says. <clears throat> the sun-faced Buddha is good. The moon-faced Buddha is good. Whatever it is, it's good. All things are Buddha. And there's also no Buddha. Isn't that true? I mean, it's like the present moment, right? Uh, your emotions are in the present moment. You can only experience your life in this moment. And yet, you can't grasp the moment because there is no present moment. Everybody is going on about the present moment these days. But actually, any meditator knows there is no present moment. That's another construct that we're superimposing on our life, that there's a present moment. As soon as you notice the present moment, that's not it. So we say, oh, there's a Buddha, there's this solidity, there's something we can trust, but you can't find it. You can only experience it. And while you're experiencing it, there's no separate you that's having the experience, so then you never get to experience it. Does this make any sense at all? You don't get to have the experience. When there's a you that's having the experience, you're probably not fully in the experience. So then he goes on. Usually, when someone says, no Buddha, it means you're sticking to one way of understanding. When you do not stick to one way of understanding, then whatever you say is okay. If I suffer when I'm dying, that's okay. That is a suffering Buddha. There's no confusion in it. Everyone will struggle because of physical agony or spiritual agony, but it's not a problem. 
We should be very grateful to have a limited body like mine or like yours. If you had a limitless life, it would be a great problem for you. A human being is a human being. We can enjoy our life only with our limited body. This limitation is a vital element for us. In other words, you have an expiry date and your body is limited in what it can do. But this is vital. Without limitation, nothing exists. So we should enjoy our limitation. A weak body, a strong body, a man or a woman. The only way to enjoy your life is to enjoy the limitation that's given to us. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Then he says, this kind of confidence within ourselves is important. When you have this kind of confidence in yourself, in your being, you can practice true meditation, which is beyond perfect or imperfect, good or bad. If you sit down and you say, oh, that's really good, you're caught. And when you're sitting, if you say, oh, this is really bad, then you're caught. There's a you that is in relationship to what's good, or a you created out of what's bad. So we need to have a stability in our posture that's really earthy. So this practice is very earthy and also very fluid at the same time, just like a mountain. Earthy and very fluid. So you have to balance yourself. And you have to start little by little. So in your iCal, does everybody have an iCal? Or do some of you still use a pencil? Okay. Three women in the state. So, when you go to your calendar, you should pencil in um, meditation practice so that it's a rhythm in your day. My friend, uh, Matthew Remsky, did I tell you yesterday that you should all study his work? He thinks that pretty much most people's healing would show up if you had a rhythm in your day. So, you need a rhythm, and you need to get your body into a rhythm, and so you pencil into your calendar meditation practice, and then you make a date with it, and you show up on time, just like you would if you lived in Richmond, and you were meeting somebody. You show up on time. Even you, Jessica. <laughs> and then you have a date with yourself. And the most important thing is your intention. That your intention is you're going to meet whatever happens in that moment. And you're going to set a timer so that you can sit for, let's all start with 20 minutes, because we've been doing that together. We're going to sit with it for 20 minutes. And then you'll feel discomfort. If you felt discomfort today, you'll feel discomfort. And then when you feel discomfort, there are three important things. Oh, before those important things. Whatever you feel, it doesn't matter. Because if it's comfortable or uncomfortable, that's just the sun and the moon. But we're practicing sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha, 
which means awake. You can be awake in the sun, awake in the moon, awake in loneliness, awake in fear, awake in peace, awake in happiness, awake in jealousy, awake in envy, awake in anger, awake in rage, and I could go on and on. So, three important things. Number one, seclusion. When you sit, you should feel like you can create a bubble of seclusion and know what seclusion feels like. So even though there's sounds outside, you're going to sit in your breathing and you're going to uh, feel the sounds, but stay with your breathing so that your sense organs stop chasing after the sounds. So there's sounds happening, but your body is not reacting to them. And you can cultivate some solitude, some seclusion, like a bubble. And uh, there was a king named King Ashoka. And in the Buddha's life, King Ashoka was very, very uh, violent. And uh, one day after a massacre, he went out in the morning and looked at all the bodies and was completely horrified that he had created this. And um, apparently he pulled out his hair and he couldn't stop saying, what have I done? I would like to see some politicians feel this way <coughs> I would love to see a politician show some remorse. So politics aside, I want to see a human being show some remorse about the effects of all the violence. <coughs> so anyways, then King Ashoka started uh, planting these pillars all over India that had teachings on them about nonviolence. And my favorite part of the story about King Ashoka is that the pillars are buried so half of the pillar is in the ground. Can you picture that? So if you had a 60-foot-long pillar, 30 feet of it is buried. That's how we should meditate. We should meditate in such a way where when you sit, you're 30 feet deep. You're 100 feet deep. I'm 6 feet tall. So when I sit, I should sit 6 feet deep. No. 100 I should sit 100 feet deep, or 200. Would you like that? Could you, could you imagine this feeling? Like you say, just pick a number, let's say 700 feet. <coughs> and then when you sit down, you feel yourself as being 700 feet deep. In other words, you create this space of solitude, even though it's not really solitude, solitude, where there's so much depth and earthiness that you're not going to get blown around by every emotion and every email. Um, less impacted. So my question to you that I hope you'll explore as the weekend ends is whether you have seclusion available to you. Whether in your life you allow yourself some time to retreat 
and experience this closeness, this intimacy with breathing and with the present moment? Or are you running around like an addict, addicted to information, images, Instagram? Number two, the initial application of attention. I want to say intention, actually. Maybe it's the same thing. In other words, uh, as you're sitting, you want to make sure that you can get that initial application of the intention to be attentive. Do you know what I mean by that? So it's like you can sit... And you could just be like completely off uh, replaying some conversation that you had again and again and again and again and again. Looping. Did anybody do that today? Now you sit down and maybe for one of the sits you're just, you can't stop thinking about the conversation you really need to have on Monday with somebody. Or the one they had with you on Friday. Or the email you sent that was stupid. Unskillful. So, you need this initial application of intention. And then the third point that's really important is the sustained application of attention. So a lot of us, we can get the initial application. So you can, you can stay with the whole surface area of your breath. But then you can only stay with it for like two breaths. And then you're off to the races. So... As soon as you start getting into the groove of softening your breath, you want to stay there long enough that you can feel that switch where your breath starts to get shallow. And then sustain your attention there. Concentrate there. And develop the strength to hold your attention there. And then, I said I was going to name three characteristics. Seclusion, the intention that's initial, and then the attention that's sustained. Well, there's a fourth one. The fourth one is when you start sustaining your attention, the bubble disappears. Which is that at first it feels like you're going inward, you're really secluded from the formations that you're usually obsessed with. And then you sustain the attention, and then the feeling of being secluded falls away And you start feeling really open. You actually sense a real openness. There's sounds, there's the trees. Did you notice in walking meditation how the longer we walked, the more you feel the earth, the more you feel the wind. So what at first seems like seclusion ends up releasing us from our compulsiveness. And then we're released into a world that's so much richer than the narrow world of our theories about everything. Me, 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 me. So, the bubble dissolves, and then um, you can let go of your conditioning. You can let go of the habits of your conditioning. And um, one of the ways to do that is to keep checking in the posture so that every time your tongue gets tight, you let your tongue go. 
And every time your fingers get tight, you check on the mudra of your fingers. Remember I was talking about that yesterday? Did anybody notice that? Yeah. So, um, then your mind can become one with your breath. Completely one with your breathing. On Friday night, I read you a poem that my teacher Enkyo Roshi wrote. And I wanted to read it again. Because now with all this practice, it might make more sense. So, uh, how many of you were here Friday? Yeah, about half of you maybe. Sitting quietly, one minute, one hour, no matter. Finding the quiet within, I find myself again and again. Finding myself, I offer the quiet light to those on the street, in the office, and all around me, to the lost and suffering beings, to the bewildered and questioning, even to the bare tree with its leafless branches filled with chirping sparrows. So, what you're doing when you're sitting is you're finding yourself again and again and again. And then, a light appears. It's not some mystical, like, LED light. It's just a quiet illumination that lights up whatever's happening. And then you have a skill that is so needed in our society, which is the skill to be present with anybody's suffering. So whoever you encounter, you can be present with their suffering. And isn't this the heart of yoga? Is this practice of love, which is being able to presence whatever's really going on and not turning away from it, which is what we normally do. But you only do this by sitting quietly and coming to yourself again and again and again and again and again. And maybe in 20 minutes of sitting, you do it a thousand times. Most of the time, though, we're just dreaming little dreams. And every time you're dreaming, you have to wake up. And then you dream, and then you wake up. And some people, their dreams go on for a decade or more. Anybody ever felt like that? One day it's like, you wake up, and you think, what kind of choices am I making? And waking up means not being attached to the dreams that are so seductive. And the dream that's the most seductive for all of us is the anger fantasy. Blaming other people or blaming ourselves. So, one teacher uh, who I already talked about earlier, Dogen, listen to what he says about not indulging the fantasy of anger. This is a very, very important instruction. He says, not advancing, not retreating, not real, not empty. There is an ocean of bright clouds and there is an ocean of solemn clouds. Isn't this like sun face, moon face? So he says, not advancing, so not getting into it. 
but also not retreating, not running away from it, not seeing it as real, but not seeing it as not real, <laughs> not seeing it as empty. Then you see that there is an ocean of bright clouds, and there's an ocean of solemn clouds. That's how he says you should work with anger. Could you imagine this? So anger arises. Has anybody had this experience before? <laughs> when you sit sometimes, um, you can't maintain the sitting when you're really angry. Although I have to say that in my own experience, I haven't had too much anger show up when I'm sitting. Mostly it shows up communicating. I don't know about you. Most of my anger shows up because of other people doing stupid things. <laughs> so, when the anger shows up, don't advance. Don't send your troops in. Also, don't retreat. Don't run away from it. Because the anger usually has something important to say. Don't see what you're experiencing as real and don't see what you're experiencing as empty. In other words, give it some respect. Don't see that it's really how things are, but don't say to yourself it's not how things are. Do you see this middle path? Then see that it's part of the ocean of clouds. Some of the clouds are so bright, and some of the clouds are moon-faced. Some of them are solemn. And then the moment changes. If you can see this like this, then time passes. And time, when it passes, purifies you. There's something purifying about time when you're not holding on to what you're experiencing. But usually when anger comes, we hold on to our stories so tight. <coughs> and then you take care of your posture. And I recommend when people are angry that they uh, do walking meditation. And then if you do walking meditation, um, the walking will purify you. Um, you'll become one with your breathing, one with your body, one with your anger. And then you can meet the anger unconditioned or unsoiled by the anger. Can I tell you another story? Once there was a 13th century master named Zhu Qing who was the sanitation officer at the monastery, which is a very nice way of saying they cleaned the shit in the bathrooms. And back in the day, in monasteries, the, the toilets were made out of wood. And so some of the uh, residue would fall through the wood and get stuck in the tiles. And it was like a big job to clean the bathroom of a monastery and all the uh, tiled trenches underneath the toilets. 
And so he would take the buckets of manure, human manure, and put them in the compost in the garden, and then he would wash the tiles and the wood with a rag. This was his job. And one time his teacher, uh, Secho, asked him, how do you clean that which has never been soiled? <coughs> how do you clean what's never been soiled? So this is the job of a good teacher, as they give you a question that you have no idea. <laughs> so uh, poor Ju Ching didn't know how to answer. So he kept practicing with that question every day, every breath, for one year. And he would ask himself while he was cleaning the shit, how do I practice with what's not been soiled? And then one day, he came to his teacher and says, I got it. I've touched what's never been soiled. So, they never tell you what he touched. But this is for you to feel, which is how do you touch what's unconditioned? Let me give you a hint. How can you meet what's coming up in your life without the conditioned habits that you usually meet your experience with? How can you have a more flexible vocabulary of responsiveness so that when something arises, a sensation you don't like, or a feeling that you have a hard time letting into your heart, um, that your mind can be so soft and so alert that um, you can take it in without soiling it. So here's someone working with shit, saying to himself all the time, oh, I'm working with shit, my job is the janitor, even though they call me the sanitation superintendent. Um, and then one day, can you imagine this? One day he's thinking this, I'm working with shit, I'm working with shit. My teacher's telling me, how do I touch what's not soiled? And then he has a moment where he's just shoveling and he's not saying to himself, this is shit. He's just shuffling. And then maybe it's a jewel, actually. And it's not stained, it's not soiled. You see? Because he's not adding to the shit a theory that it's shit. He's just with his experience. Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. Sometimes things are so hard, and then we add to it this story that things are so hard. And there's a, like a double difficulty. Not only things are hard, but now you're telling yourself how hard everything is. <laughs> and this is, it's also like this with busyness. I have a pretty busy life, actually. But it's okay. But if I start telling myself I'm so busy, then I'm really all stressed out because I'm so busy. So when you sit... Uh, the sitting posture is your teacher. Whatever shows up is your teacher. And your age, and your gender, your race, your ethnic background, your sexual orientation, all the things that are really important when you're relating to people don't matter anymore. Because when you sit, your age has nothing to do with it. You're sitting underneath that. 
What a relief, hey? Some of us, because of our uh, ethnicity or um, uh, maybe disability or uh, history, when we're in certain situations, it's so important that we own our identity, that we say, um, in this situation, I'm an underrepresented person, or in this situation, I have privilege, or in this situation, I'm an oppressed person. And then you, you stand up in your identity and you really own it, like, I'm a woman. And maybe in some situations, it's so important to claim your identity as a woman. But then when you sit, you can let go of all that. And it's so important to do both, because sometimes we get so attached to the politics of our identity that we forget that it's not the only part of who we are. And we need to be able to do both things the courage to really be embodied in our identity and the ability to drop that too because it's not the whole of who we are even though it can cause a lot of trouble and a lot of benefit too so that's why stillness is really healing because um, you're free of your identity what a relief. God, I had to be someone? It takes so much energy. And it's so annoying to be somebody. <laughs> it's so annoying. Aren't you the most annoying person to yourself? Yes. Who's the most annoying person in your life? It's you. <laughs> so, then you can experience uh, space. In early Buddhist teachings, and you find this in the yoga tradition also, the only thing that's not conditioned is space. So when you meditate, you can feel what's not soiled and not conditioned, which are moments of spaciousness not colored by craving, not colored by reactivity. And you can feel space, and you can see space, and you can breathe space. And in a world of so many objects, we always forget about space. I think I was saying the other day that I don't follow anyone on Instagram except for Yoko Ono. I, I love Yoko Ono on Instagram. She takes all these photographs of herself in space. And the most beautiful thing about these photographs is like there's always her from behind often you don't see her face and there's a scene with so much space around it when you go home you should consider uh, organizing your, your rooms so that not only do you see the objects in your room but you have some respect for the space in your home and when you sit, you should organize your posture. So you're very aware of your muscles and your bones and so on. But also so you start to feel a space in your sacrum, in your knees, in your breathing, and then in your perception, some space. Because what is suffering 
It's when we're experiencing something, but we can't find any space around it. It's a lack of space. That's a problem. Our problems are when there's something showing up that we can't get any space, we can't perceive it with any space around it. And when you let go of your expectations, space arises. Uh, Helen said today after the sumo headstand, oh my god, I, I don't remember what you said, it was really good though. It was like a, a bulb, light bulb. Just yeah, there's some space. My eyeballs felt huge. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite of space is rage. Rage carries a lot of sorrow in it. And we're too good at covering up our sorrow and maintaining our rage. We're so good at it. But if you can feel your sorrow, it will bring a collapse of rage. And we need grief so that we can embody our sorrow. Uh, We need space so we can feel our sorrow without the default of rage. Rage is exhausting, and being a yogi, we're committed to a practice of nonviolence. So that means learning how to grieve and feel sorrow and doing something about it but not doing something about it when we're in a rage. Doing something about it when we're in the sorrow place. If our grief can't be held in our body, then we'll kill. We'll kill space, we'll kill people, we'll kill ourselves, we'll kill everybody we love. I'm not just talking about killing with guns, but all the ways we just kill people by not listening, by not uh, perceiving people, by not giving them a voice. And uh, when you kill someone else, you're killing yourself. When you don't listen to somebody, you're not listening to yourself. So if you can uh, stay with experience without turning it into destruction, then you can learn how to grieve, which is better than mindfulness. Because what's mindfulness, really? It's grieving. It's being able to feel how beautiful this moment is, how fragile our relationships are, how beautiful our bodies are, and then to let all that go. Because you can't hold on to it. Do you remember when you were beautiful? Do you remember when you were ugly? Well, you can't hold on to those things because they're not really how things are. You can't ever keep up to how things really are. So if something's unbearable to you and you feel rage, (coughs) then you should ask yourself, what do I need to bear this? And we need a couple things. One, we need to posture. And number two, we need other people. 
And if you can't bear your problems, then you make them someone else's problems. And that's not fair. Do you know what I mean by that? If you can't tolerate what you feel, you turn it into someone else's pain. And all the time we do this, we make what's unbearable to us somebody else's problem. So when you inhale an upward dog, you inhale all the way to the top. And you feel that pattern. And then when you exhale into downward dog, you exhale all the way into your pelvic floor as your hips move up and back. And you feel that pattern. And then in the warrior pose, you lift your arms up with a very stable pelvis. And all of these poses are teaching you how to be present with sensations without fabricating a story out of all those sensations. And so the yoga teacher keeps saying, come back to your breathing, come back to your breathing, come back to the sensations you're feeling. And then you're teaching the most important lesson, which is nonviolence, which is a commitment to taking care of your sorrow, of your fantasy life, so you don't make it someone else's. So the beginning of nonviolence happens in this bubble of seclusion. <coughs> but then eventually that bubble of seclusion becomes this amazing tool for empathy and connecting with other people. And that's what all this is about. So be careful if you think that this is just about deeper backbending. You have a body, you need to do something with it. So we experiment with it. And we explore all these maps we've inherited. Following our breathing, releasing our gaze, the tongue, and so on. And we do it so that we can bear our life. So, one day, Master Ma was unwell. And the temple superintendent came by and said, How are you doing? And Master Ma said, Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha. So, maybe this can be your life also. Like I said the first day, it's so easy to understand this story, but it's really hard to practice this. So when your life is going along, and you check in with how you're doing, you can ask yourself, can I be awake to this ocean of clouds? The bright ones, the solemn ones, whatever. Can I be awake right in that? So I don't turn this into someone else's problem. So, um, that's all I have to say. And I thought maybe we could take the last bit of time together to talk and see what comes up for you and questions you have and and then uh, it's almost my bedtime <laughs> and um, I guess I'll just also say it's been so nice to be here together doing this uh, it's a, this is a very short workshop but it feels like we got somewhere I think and uh, like I said the first day I'm not interested in you like 
following any system necessarily, but uh, I hope I've given you some tools so that you can bring some depth into whatever your practice is. So um, feel free if you need to stretch your legs or whatever. And then uh, let's have some time for, for discussing, discussing this. <laughs>